Who am I, Lord? That I should stand before this audience this evening. Who am I, Lord, that I should be given the task to speak to souls whose eternal destiny some have yet to decide where they want it to be? Who am I, Lord, that I should be chosen through the foolishness of preaching that the gospel would go forth? Who am I? Heavenly Father, the Spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak. Provide. In Jesus' name, amen. Not all of you are teenagers here. I see that. Some of them have come for support. Others, I don't know why. But we're all here. For one purpose. And one purpose alone. And tonight is not like any other night. Except for the fact that you need to ask yourself one question tonight. I will preach, not because I have something prepared for you. I'm sad to say that. You are not going to have vivid illustrations. I'm not going to pull up this screen and you're going to see something wonderful that's going to shock you. I'm going to preach with God's help like a dying man to dying souls who have to ask themselves. You know, you sang it. You sang it tonight. I'm ready to leave this world. Or I want to leave this world. You sang it. It was your second song. Do you really want to leave this world right now? Are you ready to leave this world right now? And when all is said and done, and this book is closed, and my voice is but an echo, you're going to have to ask yourself tonight, is what the Spirit of God spoke in Science Center Room 106 on Thursday night true or not? Turn with me, if, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning on the 13th verse. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We know the Sermon on the Mount comprises Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the conclusion of it. Begin reading on verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I'm going to stop there for now. 
when I was 11 or 12 years old, my Sunday school gave the opportunity for its students to write a 500 or so word essay. You know what the essay was about? Why I want to go to camp. I don't know if we do that anymore. Maybe we should. The incentive was, if your essay was chosen among those that were submitted, you were given a $50 payment from the church to subsidize the cost of camp. And believe it or not, back then, $50 is all it costed for a teenager to come to camp. I don't know what I wrote, but they chose mine. They chose my essay, and I came to camp for free that year. But I can imagine back of what I probably wrote. You know, you can't just say, I want to play sports. I was young. I still am young. I want to go and play with my friends. I want to see girls. Guys, let's be honest with ourselves. But subconsciously, everyone in this room this year wrote in their mind or in their heart an essay of why they wanted to go to Eastern Camp 2008. You say, I didn't write anything. But you did. You have a motive. You have a purpose of why you came to camp this year. I know for some of you, because I've talked with some of you, your motives have changed why you wanted to come to camp this year. And now as you reflect back as the week is almost at an end, something has been revealed to you of why you came to camp. It's been expressed to me by more than one person that this week has been all about judgment and fire and brimstone. Where's God's love in that? I'm tired of being told I'm going to hell. Tell me about heaven. Tell me about the kingdom. I am tired of hearing about hell. And they said maybe the teenagers would be more receptive if they weren't told they were going to hell. Okay. Let's read verses 13 and 14 together. Look at your Bible. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Okay. How about destruction? Does that make you feel a little bit better? Probably not. Why would Jesus have to say that the way to the kingdom of heaven is on the straight and narrow? Why would he have to say that? Why would he express to those who would want to follow him, if you cannot deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me, 
You cannot be my disciple. But you sang it. I want to leave this world. I am ready to leave this world. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And how many find it? How many find it? How many find it? Few there be that find it. There goes the notion that everybody's getting to heaven. Remove that idea from your head right now. That God is so loving and that God is so great and he will have mercy upon the masses because somehow we're, we're good enough. Remove that from your head. Straight is the way. And narrow is the gate which leads to life everlasting. I hope that's not abstract for you. I hope you understand the concept of when you stand on perhaps a road that is straight or a railroad track and you look down and you learn this in visual arts, that perspective, what happens? It gets narrower and narrower as you get to the end. Interesting. There seems to be a tendency. I raised my hand and confess that somehow we think that the starting blocks of conversion are straight and narrow. And once I'm free from those starting blocks, run as you will, like a herd of cattle, driven to go wherever you want. Because after all, I went through the straight gate. Why is it important that Jesus said there's also a narrow way Why is it important for us to consider that conversion is not like a flu shot? I got it. I'm done. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-hit wonder, if you will. It's not something we do en masse, either. We don't make a pact like some foolish young teenagers to all get pregnant at one time so we can raise our children together. That's not what Christianity is about. You don't get together with your friends and say, we're going to do this all together. Oh, you can use each other as accountability partners. Don't get me wrong. But every single one of you, if you want to, I listened to Brother Ron's service on Tuesday. Very encouraged. He, he challenged you to seek what is true and what is not. And he gave you the option. You want your religion? Go out there. You'll find it. Religions are a dime a dozen. And I know that sounds crass, but it's true. Make it up. Sell it. You got yourself a religion. But you're going to have to come to the understanding that every single one of you, if you want to, 
If you want to go to heaven, because that's what we're talking about, the kingdom of heaven. If you want to, you are going to have to go through the straight gate alone. That is the hardest thing to come to grips with. In my own life, I had three friends. I had more than three. But I had three close friends in church. I'm not going to go into detail with you some of the foolish things we did together. And I know there's some parents in here, and they know it's true. That just because they're friends from church doesn't make what's going on outside the home okay. In fact, parents know, at least they should know, you folks know, that we can devise some of the most disgusting, some of the most evil thoughts, and we all go to the same church. Because without Christ, we can do nothing good. When you read in Genesis 6 about the wickedness of the world, that their heart, the only purpose of their heart was to do evil continually. Do you believe that is every one of you who has not received Christ? That you, in your state, your sinful state, can go out and commit murder? Hitler is not an anomaly. We can all do that. The wickedness. Read the prophets. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's our hearts without Christ. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It needs to be a personal experience for every one of you. And I know there are some of you here who say, I can't leave my friends. I want you to ask yourself, come judgment day, which it will come, and you still couldn't leave your friends, what will you tell Jesus? What will you say to him? But you sang, I'm ready to leave this world. I want to leave this world. Does becoming a Christian mean I'm signing on then to abolish all relationships? No. That's not what it means. But what Jesus is trying to get is to the heart of the matter. And excuse the pun, but the matter is your heart. He wants to create in you a new heart. I know, because I've spoken with some of you, that you've been convicted by the Spirit this week. That you felt the pricks, the prodding. And it's hard to kick against them. It's hard, but you know what? It's a lot easier when your friends stand up and walk away. Unless you 
miss out on the fun activity after inspiration hour, you have to leave too. It's hard to get kick against the pricks, but it's easier when your friends aren't interested. But remember, it's not about your friends anymore. It's about yourself. Because you said you want to leave this world. I'm not going to leave you hanging. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto thy multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. And be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, that thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I said I wasn't going to leave you hanging. Because I don't expect you to walk away and be asking, now what? Because Peter and the apostles did not leave those men hanging. When they expressed, men and brethren, what should we do? I know that's a question in some of your minds. What do I do? And I, Brother Werner's message last night, I hope you were listening, was very clear to me what needs to happen. Repent. Repent. Brother Nick, what's repent mean? What does that word mean? You've heard it all week, I'm sure. And I hope somebody's explained it to you. You know what repent means most of the time in the scriptures? The changing of one's mind from what they formerly thought is right to the complete opposite. A 180 degree turn of thinking. Whatever you thought up to now was righteousness is not. It's a giving up of one's mind and giving it over to God. And it says, God, you were right all along. That's what we just read. That thou mightest be justified. You have the option. Because you said you're ready to leave this world. That God can justify you here and now. Lest you wait till judgment day. When God vindicates himself. What does vindicate mean? Vindicate means that God will clear himself of all criticism from us. From the world. Because we're all like Adam. In sin did my mother conceive me. The sinful Adam nature that we all have. That points back to God and says. Lord you gave me the woman. That's why I ate of the apple. 
You gave me the woman. He blamed God. And you, in your unconverted state, blame God. I blame God. I felt just like Brother Werner. Why did I have to be brought up in this faith? Why did my dad have to be a preacher? Why did I have to go to Sunday school when all my friends enjoyed a full weekend? You have those same questions. I know you do. So what do you do when the spirit pricks? Cry. Like the psalmist cried out, Have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Confess your sins to him. You say, God knows all things. Why should I do that? There we are again, pointing to God and his omnipotence and his omniscience. If you know everything, why should I bow my knee to you? Oh. Why should we bow our knee to God? Because Jesus said, fear not the man which can kill your body. And afterward, he's got nothing else he can do. But he says, I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him. That after you have died, he has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. God is looking for you to break down, to give up. Young ones, the show is over. I know you had a good time at the show this afternoon. You had a great time after teen choir. But the show is up. The reality is, you have to make a decision now. Right now. You have to decide. And I love the people who say, I'm not going to decide, I'm not going to make a decision. You have. You've chosen once again to not accept the invitation. And those of you, because you're in here, who hear the call and say, not yet. I'm just not ready yet. I'm going to use a ridiculous analogy for you, but I want you to consider it. When somebody calls your house and the phone is ringing and ringing, you might look at caller ID screen the call and say, I don't want to answer it. But normally, you pick up the phone to find out who's on the other end. You don't expect that that phone will be ringing tomorrow because you didn't pick it up. You don't expect that phone to be ringing next week because you didn't pick it up. I ask you now, when God calls on you, do you pick up? Are you ready to pick up? Or are you still enjoying your fling in this world? Are your friends and yourself enjoying the revelings of this life? No, you're not. You're ready to leave the world. You sang it in front of us. That's a dangerous thing about music. About any spoken word, whether it's just through speaking or through singing, is that you and I 
will be held accountable for every idle word that comes out of our mouth. For every ill intention. For every evil thought. We learned that today. There's a book of works. Cry out. Brother Werner said it clearly last night. It's not cookie cutter. But this I do know. Because I've experienced it. When you give up everything. When you cry to God in true repentance. And ask for forgiveness of sins. And you confess your sins before him. And you share with your family and your friends that you don't want this old life anymore. You've been called to something better. You're ready to leave this world. God promises. God promises that he will blot out your transgressions. He will create in you a new heart. A new purpose. A new meaning in life. I shared with a soul last night. Jesus said, I love it that the young people always challenge the preachers and say, tell me something that Jesus said. After all, he's the authority. He's the one that we say we have a relationship with. He's the son of God. Don't tell me what Paul said to the Romans. Don't tell me what James wrote. Don't tell me about Timothy and all these others. Tell me what Jesus said. I'll tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, no man who sets his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Take a second and mull that over. We don't maybe understand the concept of a plow today that he was referring to, a mule-driven cow, or plow rather, that you had to hold on to. And why couldn't you look back? That would be absurd to try and plow a straight line because it's straight and narrow and look back. How would you know where you're going? Remember Lot's wife. For the believer, I don't know how many there are of you in here those of you who have died to sin, that's right, died to sin and have risen with Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what a believer's life is. Are we perfect people? Absolutely not. But is God perfect? Yes, he is. And what is the believer's standard in life? Is it Brother Nick? Is it Brother Tom? God forbid. Not to pick on you, Brother Tom. Jesus Christ is the perfect standard. And for us to move that away and to change it in any way, we take away the power of the born-again believer's life. Brother and sister, do you believe that? That if you remove the standard or you lessen the standard, your life and its power is diminished. 
And you know what these young people see in us? They see what James writes about. That's right, James writes about in chapter 1. They see a man or a woman that is tossed to and fro and driven with the wind. And he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. How do we become double-minded? Well, because we've lessened the standard. We've replaced it with something that we think is better or something perhaps we think we can achieve. But to lessen the standard is to prove that Christ wasn't good enough. Brother and sister, put in your mind, look at the cross and see the Savior there and tell me that's not enough. But our lives, we sing songs. Do they see Jesus in me? Do they recognize his face? Brother and sister, can we chime in with the teens and say, I'm ready to leave this world. I want to leave this world. And more importantly, I've already left the world. Or am I caught up with it? You know what scares me? Is the parable of the sower and the seed. You all know it. You've all heard it. If you don't, go home, read it tonight. Matthew 13. Seven kingdom parables. The first one is the parable of the sower and the seed. Read it. Jesus explains it perfectly. The type of ground that scares me the most is not the one that the birds came and devoured everything. That's the sidewalk that never actually made it to the soil. It's not the one that had stones and then had no root. And so when persecution came, that it just dried up. And of course, it wouldn't be the one that brings forth 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Why would that scare you? That's what we're supposed to do. But brother and sister, what scares me is the third type of soil, where the seed began to grow. There was plant life. There was potential for fruit. But Mark chapter 4, I believe it's 9 or 19, says, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts, that's right, the lusts of other things entering in choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. Why does it matter, brother and sister, what our lives look like? We've already received Jesus, haven't we? We've already been born again. Why does it matter what our lives look like? We continue in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. 
Why do our lives matter? Brother and sister, and those of you, Lord willing, that, as Brother Werner said, are yet unconverted, or rather yet converted. Why does it matter what our lives look like? It matters because our lives represent who we are. A good tree, Jesus said, a good tree cannot bring forth corrupt fruit. But the converse of that is a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. And he finishes it off beautifully. And he says, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Read it again to yourself. By your fruits, ye shall know them. Jesus is not looking for what it says on your t-shirt. Jesus is not looking for what it says on your bracelet. He's not looking for keychain Christians. He's not looking for bumper sticker believers. He's not looking for tattooed theologians. He's looking for fruits of repentance. This makes me cringe because I know I don't measure up. I know I fail. But there's a burden in my heart, dear ones, that if the believers don't get it right, if we don't set the example for you, who are you looking at? Who do you look to? I pray you look to Jesus, to which we all need to look to. The standard that cannot be lessened and can be not ever be removed. That's who we need to look to. I know it's a lot easier to counsel with your friends, but it's sad to say, it's like the Pharisees, especially if it's unconverted, trying to teach the unconverted. It's like the blind leading the blind, and they both fall into the ditch and die. I want to speak to the soul, because there's got to be at least one of you who looks around them and sees believers doing things contrary to the word of God and says, I want nothing of this faith because I do much better than those people. They do this, they go to that, they say things I wouldn't say. Where are you in this audience? The self-righteous, the ones that reek in God's presence. The ones that come with their own robes to the kingdom's gate and wave the rotten smell of filthy rags. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Is that clear? That we bring nothing to the table? That by grace we are saved through faith 
and not that of ourselves. That it is a gift of God. But it's not a gift that you and I deserve. It's not a gift that you and I earn. And it's not a gift that you get because you're a son or a daughter of a Christian. That's very sobering to me to know when I was yet converted that God has no spiritual grandchildren. He has in-line sons and daughters. That's it. You can't ride the coattails of mommy and daddy. But as Brother Werner said, and as the Bible says, do you have an advantage? Yes, you do. Just like the Jew had the advantage. And in what way did they have the advantage? Every way, Paul writes in Romans. Every way, because unto them were given the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. And you are given the word of God. brother and I, we're not the only ones, I pray we're not the only ones, have expressed concern to God in prayer, to each other, to our loved ones, that you young people are trying to be sold something. We are consumers by nature. And if the delivery doesn't come in all the trimmings, and it doesn't have the shock and awe, and it doesn't fit my picture of Christianity, my ears are stopped. My heart gets hard. Because he didn't do a good enough job of convincing me. Well, I'm not here to convince you. The Bible says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Absolutely. We understand the terror of the Lord. But I cannot. And no brother, no man on this earth at present time can stand before you right now, right now, and save you. And convince you that you need a Savior. No one can do that. Not I, not an elder, not even your own parents who know you better than probably anyone else. You know who does that? God does that. God doesn't always speak in a loud and booming way. It's not always thunder and lightning like Mount Sinai. When the children of Israel trembled and they said, Moses, lest we perish, you go talk with God. We don't want to. God doesn't always come like that. And I pray that your experience with God doesn't have to end like that. That you get smacked down like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. But that tonight, as in previous nights, you've heard the call ringing on your heart. You felt the warmth that's the love of God for your soul. Willing that he wishes that none would perish. But unfortunately, we read it together. That straight is the way. 
and narrow is the gate. And how many find it? Few. Few there be that find it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But they that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Not everyone, not every Christian will enter. It takes a truly born-again believer whose life has been transformed by the power of Almighty God and not one who has been under the conviction of a fiery sermon and has raised their hand and said, I received Jesus Christ up my sleeve and in my heart. Not everyone that cries out, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. That ought to send shockwaves down your spine. It does mine. As a believer, that wakes me up and makes me realize that I don't have the freedom to go and do as I will. The Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. Brother and sister, don't ask yourself. Did Christ die so that I can do this thing? Did he die so I have the freedom to go and do these things? No. Brother and sister, who we are to be the examples of these ones, ask yourself, did Christ die that I might have the liberty, the freedom to not do that thing? To have the power not to succumb to that temptation. That's when we will hear, enter in to the kingdom. Because we've put away ourself. We've put away our rights. And we could say like the Apostle Paul, we fought a good fight of faith. In closing, 200 and some teens, very impressive. Praise God. The last time I was a teenager at Eastern Camp, I didn't make it to Thursday night. It's not because I got hurt. It's not because I broke a bone. I don't, you don't need to know the details. But I went home Tuesday night. But I didn't go home alone. I went home with one of my friends. I went home with one of my friends because we were cool. We didn't need this place. We thought it would be neat to do some things that I'm not even going to mention. It's not important. But the things that we did and were caught for there was nothing else. Talk about judgment. 
How about parading in front of every camp advisor and every elder on site that year? Stand against a cold stone wall and they look at you like the worst people in all the world. It was the last year that camp was at Juniata College. I don't think that's why. Maybe. But they asked, whose voice or voices were on that phone? There was phones in every room. Oh, and it was fun to call everyone. And it was even more fun when you got an answering machine that said, hi, this is the dean of men of Junietta College. Please leave a message. Ho, ho, leave a message, did we? We were cool. We owned that place. We were there for ourselves. We were there for the girls. We didn't care about teen choir. We didn't care about forums. Why I wanted to go to camp that year? Have a good time. Ask yourself tonight, why? Why did you come to camp?